You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket subs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Vampire's Hunger for Dracula 2000. week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode, when we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani. 2000! <laughs> and I am Adam Thomas. I might be Judas Iscariot. I might not be. I might just be a Scottish guy. I don't know. I, I might. Well, and uh, we're we're not alone here in our vampire coven, Adam, because we have a returning guest for the first time in quite a while since our Game of Dotor episode way back when. Feels like a different time period at this point. Uh, but we have uh, the lovely co-host of sequels returning here, Alejandra Gonzalez. Alejandra, welcome back. Hi. I'm so excited to be back. I thought you guys had forgotten about me. Oh, no, we, we could never forget. Hashtag never forget. I thought you guys thought I was so terrible on the last one that you didn't want me back. <laughs> You've had far worse guests, believe me. Okay. <laughs> I'm here on the show a second time. But you're back here, obviously, because um, if anyone has listened to sequels or follows you on your various social media platforms, they know that you're a pretty big fan of vampires, which is our subject for the evening to kick off the Halloween October season. And uh, I just want to ask, where did that start for you, and why does that really linger for your love of vampiric stories? No one's ever asked me that, you know. I never really gave it much thought, but I think that it has a lot to do with me as a queer person and how I see myself represented on screen. I mean, you know, fictionally, but accurately through the vampire. And I just really identify with them, which sounds a little bit crazy, but hopefully we get to, you know, flesh that out (laughs) in our conversation today. But I do think that that's probably why I feel so connected to them. And what are some of your favorite general vampire stories? Like what really exemplifies what you look for in a vampire story? Ooh, I love vampire stories that are like explicitly queer, like Interview with a Vampire. Um, One of the films we're talking about today, for instance. So those are some that I gravitate towards the most. And I also really, really, really like (laughs) the more kind of metal kind of vampire that we see in the early 2000s, which we'll also talk about (laughs) today. So I'm very excited. Very early 2000s. One would almost say the year 2000, as it were. Some would say. Some would say. Um, But, you know, I mean, I I remember, I think I more gravitated toward vampires from a more sort of like universal monster perspective, I think, initially, which in its own way Mm -hmm. was sexy for the time like a bella lugosi was like a sex symbol back in that time still is true we stand a bella but yeah i think as, as i've like pursued more vampire stories i kind of like how much like any good horror tale you can kind of have various different interpretations you can have your 30 days of night vampires you can have your twilight vampires you can have all sorts of different flavors and none of them are necessarily less valid than any of the other ones would you agree with that adam oh sure uh, I remember as a kid, I I think the first vampire movie I saw was The Lost Boys. And I was instantly like, I don't know if I want to be Kiefer Sutherland or be in him or him in me or what, but something <laughs> weird is going on here. 
And uh, ever since then, I just sort of like have followed the genre. Like I went backwards from Lost Boys to the original Nosferatu all the way up to Werner Herzog's Nosferatu to all the iterations of Dracula throughout Universal and Hammer. And then, you know, like, like, like Ali said earlier, then, you know, you got the late nineties to mid two thousands rock and roll leather vampires, like, you know, blade two and all this shit. And even them I like, and I, I, I don't mind the twilight ones either. Cause it's just something different, but yeah, I absolutely just love the idea of vampirism. It's such a sexy sort of alluring, attractive idea. I, my perfect idea of a vampire movie is when they, they make it so alluring and sexy and attractive, but then you get down to the, the real horror of the sort of concept when they're actually faced with it. Like, uh, one of our movies, I'd say our first movie, kind of does a really good job with that. And then uh, our second movie uh, does it, but I don't think it means to. No, yeah, but there's definitely that allure that's always been the key thing. I think that's what makes the vampire kind of distinctive from a lot of other horror monsters is definitely that kind of initial attraction. Being able to live forever and be forever youthful and also but the price you ultimately pay at the same time. I think no matter what sort of the interpretation that's always kind of at the heart of it is uh that sort of fear of death uh yeah i'd say so in the most part uh, unless you get to like you alluded to earlier like 30 days a night or even like the blade vampire stuff where they're not scared they want to live forever they're just savage animals like i said they're all valid ideas but like you know you go from interview with the vampire the tortured sort of idea of louis and then on the opposite end you got lestat i mean i think that's probably the perfect representation of idea of vampirism yes i definitely say so but let's go into our specific two films which if you're new here every week um adam and i usually discuss a good and a bad feature that we uh, choose at the end of our previous episode um randomly uh so in this case i had two good picks and adam had two bad picks Though for the good pick, uh, this was actually chosen by our patrons, because every once in a while we have a poll up for like, hey, what good pick or what bad pick do we do for a particular episode? And you all chose my good pick of The Hunger. Those of you who vote at uh, patreon.com slash gedbpod, which we'll talk about more at the end of the show. And then we did randomly pick your bad pick, Adam, which was Dracula 2000. So uh, it'll be <laughs> a sync double feature <laughs> for sure. Uh, but first, let's discuss the good one here. Let's discuss The Hunger. Sarah Roberts is in jeopardy, for she has begun to feel the awful horror of The Hunger. John Blaylock. The Hunger has given him everlasting life. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting and the timeless beauty of Catherine Deneuve. The cruel elegance of David Bowie. The open sensuality of Susan Sarandon. The Hunger. So, The Hunger came out um, April 28th, 1983, directed by Tony Scott. His film debut, which is really interesting if you consider uh, most of his career was made up of, like, bigger action pieces like uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 or Crimson Tide, uh, Last Boy Scout, stuff like that. Amazing movie. Yes. I think he's a very underrated director, honestly. Especially with stuff like Man on Fire is one of my favorite action movies of the you know new millennium. But this definitely feels a bit out of step with his usual work. He had done commercials prior to this and was actually really gung-ho on ma- trying to make the interview with a vampire adaptation that was languishing for like about a decade before it eventually was made by Neil Jordan. But instead he decided to do this. And I think it makes a lot of sense given uh, this one definitely feels sort of like the more artsy version of something like an interview with a vampire with a few... Uh, Flips of gender and stuff like that, for sure. Um, Ally, were you familiar with this movie? Of course. I love this movie so much. I never 
you know, I did some research about it today and I never took Tony to be the type to really, really, really be dying to do an adaptation of Interview with a Vampire, but this has forever changed my life. But The Hunger is one of my favorite vampire movies, which makes it surprising to me that it's, I mean, it's it's definitely a favorite on like Twitter. I see a lot of people like it there, but like nobody else has ever heard of it. I can't bring it up in a conversation like on an everyday basis and <laughs> have people be like, oh yeah, I love that movie. I think I saw it once. Nobody has ever seen it like in the real world. No, it, it was not successful at the time at all. It was definitely kind of like came out and went. It's definitely had a cult appreciation sense for sure. It's so goth. This kind of reminds me a lot of The Lost Boys and those like early 2000s vampire movies. It's so cold. Like it's like metallic almost. I'm not sure how to explain it, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. And I don't think it's only because of that Bauhaus intro that this film has. But it's, yeah, it's, it's I was so going to say like, hmm, is it gall? How could you tell by like Bauhaus starting off the movie playing Bela <laughs> Lugosi's Dead? Um, it, it feels like it was very sort of um, influential though in at least goth subculture. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, it has a lot also to do, I think, with the fact that David Bowie is in it. <laughs> right, of course, there's a lot to that. But uh, Adam, were you are you also a fan of this one? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I hadn't seen it in a long, long time uh, before this rewatch. But yeah, I, I, I'm sort of with uh, Ali on this, where a lot of people might not have seen it. But I come to find, like, if you mention The Hunger to people, maybe people a little bit older, and, you know, they're like, what's that? Oh, it's the movie with David Bowie from the 80s. Uh, yeah, I think I might know that. Is that the one with the Jim Henson puppets, right? <laughs> exactly. Something like he's on Earth or something like that. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, no, I absolutely think this is just, it, it's a really, really well done film, too. And I agree, there is a certain sort of uh, clinical coldness to it, in a way. And a lot of the filters that are put on it and, and the very, the gothic sort of influence. But, the way this movie is fucking shot, man. I mean, especially in like modern day HD, it is fucking gorgeous, dude. This movie is fucking amazing to look at. It looks a little noiry, right? Absolutely. There's... It's got a lot of wide angle shots and go up to real close sort of personal. Uh, you know, the camera's on a tilt a lot in certain scenes. Well, and even like a lot of the costuming, like the what Bowie wears to Susan Sarandon's office and Catherine Deneuve kind of has a femme fatale energy to her. Throughout most of the movie. Oh, too. yeah, without a doubt. I mean, Susan Sarandon in this movie looks like she walked off a noir movie. Just the way her hair is done, her her eyes alone. I mean, just she looks out of time in this movie. And in you know, like I was gonna say, it's anchored by just fucking phenomenal performances, and it just drips and oozes sex appeal the whole movie in every way. There are also like a lot of like blinds and like backlit. <laughs> Oh, it's very backlit. Yeah, it does almost kind of look like I think a lot of people criticized it at the time for being kind of more style over substancy and looking more like a perfume ad, which it does to a certain <laughs> extent. I can kind of see that. But at the same time, I think that kind of works because like you guys have been talking about like the stealiness. It looks like so much of the movie is lit by like the blinds and the, the way that like all the shadows are kind of composed. It feels definitely like all these characters are very much closing themselves off from the light and humanity, not because, like, these vampires don't actually have any adversity to light, but it seems like it's more of an aesthetic choice that's, like, we don't want to bathe in the light of others, the, the ungodliness of us. We, we're uh, more exactly. sophisticated than that, yeah. Which is a cool aesthetic choice at the same time that it kind of speaks to the characters. Oh, so amazing. <laughs> I don't get it. I don't understand. I mean, I guess, you know, you made a point when you said that if you mention it to an older crowd, they would remember it if you kind of, like described it a little bit more but 
I, I don't know anyone in my real life that has seen this and it's extremely disappointing you know we talked about how brassy and like cold it feels but it also feels intimate and it feels you know tragic in a way that can only exist if there was feelings of, of warmth between the characters so it, it there is that contrast which i really appreciate too yeah i would say it, like all the characters feel very introverted but when they do actually express some kind of emotion it feels very genuine like i think the weird trojan horse of this movie is most people would know it's like oh it's the david bowie vampire movie perfect casting david bowie looked forever young for so long in his career and him playing a vampire feels perfect but i when i first saw this i thought like oh it's gonna be like he's in more of the movie he's only in about like the first half of the movie before his horrible fate happens um, but I, I think that's what's so interesting is he's kind of like the Trojan horse for what the movie seems to be really about, which is like a lot of these themes about, you know, either dying or in the weird fucked up tragic case of Bowie, like, oh, you and all of Catherine Delaneuve's previous lovers are going to be alive, but mummified and put in a coffin because she doesn't feel like she can put herself through the emotions of killing you, which is like almost so much worse. <laughs> so much yeah it makes worse. her a terrible person i'd rather die. i mean he's asking her to kill him so it is still selfish of her not to want to do that well yeah but i think that's interesting is i think she's much more of like a complex character where you get the emotion of that like why she wouldn't want to do that but at the same time you do as we mentioned feel so horrible about all those people being stuck in those coffins and she like there's a lot more complexity to her than i think people at the time gave it credit for i think it's sort of one of the more unique examples because when you think about like vampires living forever you're like oh it's like lost boys like i mentioned before oh you're gonna be young forever and you're gonna be able to go around but in this case the weird tragedy of like oh no she can like live forever as a youth but like you'll live forever david bowie just at a certain point age is gonna catch up with you and it's gonna be this horrific disturbing depiction which credit to dick smith who was like a big special effects and makeup guy behind like the exorcist makeup and stuff like that the way that bowie ages is so like it feels realistic and grounded but in a way that's so unsettling as it happens so quickly it's disgusting again to give credit to dick smith that's how dick smith won his academy award that's how why dick smith is considered one of the best he's of all time is basically specifically because of his old age makeup I mean, nobody realized Max von Sydow wasn't in his fucking 70s when The Exorcist right. came out because of the old age makeup. I mean, that's how good he is. And yeah, it's, it's unsettling. It's disturbing. It's, it's tragic. But at the same time, there's such a sense of like beauty to everything that happens in this movie as well. Mm-hmm. Like, she is a terrible person. And ultimately, what she does, you know, Miriam, by keeping them up in the attic or whatever, keeping them all in these boxes and coffins all next to each other yeah it's awful but you do feel the genuine pain and loss too uh when she's dealing with bowie sort of going through the final stages of the decomposition or aging or whatever um it's just that she's been through it so many times that it's literally like the next day she moves on to the next person can relate I relate very heavily. (laughs) Do you have a box of coffins you want to tell us about in your attic? Well, now that you mention it. (laughs) No, but um, I've also seen this movie compared a lot to, like, I I don't know how accurate this is, only because I know that the book was released, what, like, in the 70s, right? And people use this movie and, like, imply that it's about the AIDS crisis. So I don't know how true that is, but... What, because people have brought it up, I do think it's in, an interesting take. And especially because what they're suffering from is really like a 
mutation in their blood, right? So it it's interesting. It's interesting. What do you guys think about that? Well, yeah, for the time especially, like, science-driven sort of vampirism wasn't that common. I feel like it's a lot more common now than it was previously. Like, what, only I Am Legend kind of covered that vaguely mm -hmm. as a book and a couple of film adaptations had come prior to this. But I, I do feel like it's maybe not so much about the AIDS crisis as much as it's definitely about addiction. I feel that it's it's so right. much, like, they even, like, pointed out to some extent with a lot of the scenes between, like, Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon at a certain point. Like, Susan Sarandon is going through the DTs when she becomes a vampire later on. And I think it's, it, it brings up a lot of, especially about kind of, like, the, sort of, like, the outsider lifestyle. I can see why people kind of compared to the AIDS crisis at the time. But if nothing else, definitely, like, the addiction factor being so consumed by wanting to have that hunger, as it's titularly called, um, you, you feel that sort of... Um, desire for it especially like the really creepy scene where um age david bowie kills the uh sort of youth that has been practicing violin with all of them earlier on um which is so unsettling and very disturbing yeah i agree i i definitely think it's maybe leading more on towards a, a drug addiction allegory um not to say that the sort of allusion to the aids epidemic isn't there especially with sort of the idea of the blood transfer and, and, and the disease mm -hmm. being in the blood changes. I, I definitely think that's part of it as well. Uh, but there's no question. To me, yes, it's definitely drugs. And uh, young Willem Dafoe was a drug dealer. I don't care what anybody says. Oh, my God. Best cameo of all time. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God. Hey, lady, want to move it along? I'm like, oh, my God, I know that fucking. He's <laughs> <laughs> not the big lines in his face yet, but it's definitely him. Uh but no, I, I absolutely think that's the case. And Thomas, I think you hit it right in the head when she's uh, going through the change and, you know, she's just covered in sweat. She's shaking and she's detoxing and, you know, she's trying to, like, resist as much as possible. Ultimately, she can't. And then once she sort of gives into it, you know, much like, you know, from what I understand, people who relapse from addiction uh, instantly feel guilt and and sadness and, and just sort of regret. And uh, ultimately that's sort of what happens to her, even though the ending that was tacked on changes that unfortunately, awful. but awful. Yeah. We'll get to that. We definitely did talk about that. There's nothing about this movie except for the, the fucking ending that doesn't just scream tragedy. Right. Though I did want to ask, especially with Allie here, um, a lot of people accused at the time of like the sort of the big sex scene that happens between Deneuve and Sarandon to be kind of like male gazy and kind of being more exploitative than um, it would be under maybe different eyes from a you know male director in this case. Do you feel that is the case here? Or do you feel that like it's a bit more fair to like, especially like the actresses involved? I honestly, I mean, it was never a problem to me. I never thought it was male gazy. I have seen that um, argument because of the way that the scene is shot. It's definitely a little bit voyeuristic because you're from like you're from the outside looking in through the canopy and stuff. But I never had a problem with it, and I think it's because throughout the whole movie, the women are presented as sexual, just like a man could be. You know, their desires aren't kind of like condemned. They're not like punished for being in tune with their sexuality. So why would you not? have them in a sex scene where you actually see it and i understand that this is the case only because they're women and they would never do this if it was two men on screen so it fetishizes it a little bit but i actually enjoy seeing that and it's not because of my sexuality but it's it's just nice to see this and i actually wish we could see it both in scenes with two men involved and 
with two women. I wish we could normalize that a little bit. I don't think every scene that is gratuitous in that way necessarily makes it male gazy. And I think it's also at least like for the time, it was very different, kind of groundbreaking to some degree, especially the fact that uh, a big part of the script was originally like Sarandon was going to be very drunk and she insisted she not be like severely drunk and out of any sort of uh, consensuality with it because she was like, look, it's Catherine Deneuve. Like, I don't care who you are. You'd want to fuck Catherine Deneuve. Fair. <laughs> I mean, look at her. But um, I, I think that also works too. We're like, the, the lines are especially interesting where, like, she's definitely attracted to Deneuve. There's definitely, like, a bisexuality that's going on, given, like, you know, she has Cliff DeYoung as her male love interest, which, I mean, I get why Cliff she would kind of go toward yeah. <laughs> Catherine Deneuve as opposed to Cliff DeYoung. <laughs> Give me Dan Hedaya. <laughs> I just love when he pops up too. It's just like, oh, mm, let me see her. There's some kind of thing going on with this young girl missing. You know anything about her? I'll just move on. Um, but I, I think to get back to the sex thing, I do like the fact that it's at least like she's consensual in terms of like, look, I want to actually go forward with this. But at the same time, there is sort of this weird attraction that's going on. Like even earlier, Danube is clearly kind of like beckoning her closer. Like there's a lot of stuff where she kind of hears a phone ring, but it's not actually ringing, stuff like that. Where like there's a bit of manipulation at foot, but it's more just to get her inching closer to what she kind of ultimately wants to do, which is have sex with her. And then from there, you get more of like the, oh, this was all a ploy ultimately for something that's about a lot more sinister. Yeah, but the, the smart thing they did about it too is, you know, yeah, she is sort of using subliminal you know, whatever you want to call it, suggestion to get her closer to her. But when she's there, Susan Sarana picks up on it almost instantly. She's like, are you trying to seduce me? That's what I really like about it, too, that they didn't use the alcohol. And that she even said that line and everything where it's like she's basically completely in control of her own actions when she's there. She wants to go forward with it just as much as, you know, Catherine Deneuve is sort of trying to force her into it. Not necessarily force. That's maybe not the right word, but influence her decision. Uh, Susan Sarandon's all about it, man. She's all about it. Yeah, it's not until she actually gets bitten during the sexual interaction that, like, that consensuality kind of loses itself. Yeah. Wait a second. Yeah. Wait a damn second. <laughs> it's not until at dinner, again, with fucking, you know, I don't blame her, but at dinner with, with fucking homeboy that she's, I mean, she's still into it. She's still thinking about it. She's still incredibly turned on by it. I mean, she, it still was like, it blew her fucking mind. And uh, like I said, that's what I really sort of enjoy about it. And it's sort of refreshing to where there's, there is no sort of crazy spell like manipulation or anything like that. It's just, she wants to get laid and this lady wants to lay her. So she's like, all right, cool. Let's go for it. <laughs> you know, there's a level of intriguement and sort of curiosity and fascination. And she just acts upon it. And I think that's, not only natural, but realistic in a lot of ways, too. I feel like Twilight is the last movie I remember doing that, where she's like, no, I want this. I want it. To the, well, to the point in Twilight where like he's like, no, nah, I can't. She's like, no, you put it in. <laughs> <laughs> she needs help. <laughs> True. Um, but I guess we should get to, we mentioned the ending. Which I do agree, the biggest problem of the movie is after having a pretty solid conclusion with, like, Sarandon killing herself, and then what happens up there in the attic with all the mummies, which, let me just say, is, like, one of the most underrated, um, horrifically scary endings to any movie for me, is Catherine Drew being, like, chased down by her mummy vampire 
former lovers and being like thrown down the stairs um i think is an incredibly beautifully disturbing just like all the different mummy shots that her like falling down the stairs looks so goddamn painful yeah i mean it's what she deserves true i'm not saying it isn't but at the same time if you put like yourself in that perspective just like oh my god they're all haunting me down and then i'm like aging rapidly after i fell down the stairs it's so upsetting (laughs) (laughs) it is but that that scene of her falling down the stairs through sort of the you know ascending circular stairwell is is so wonderful looking. I mean, it is amazing. To me, that is the best use of that trope in really almost any genre movie. I'd put it up against the scene in Psycho, the scene in The Omen, any of those scenes as far as someone just falling in that fashion. I, I think it's absolutely the best looking one. It looks so good. It's in this weird slow-mo, and she's got sort of the red garment on, and you you can literally see it all the way down from a bird's-eye view. It looks so fucking cool. Watching it this time, I realized, like, oh, you can even see the influence on something like American Psycho. Like, all the shots where, like, he's throwing down the chainsaw at the girl who's trying to run away look very suspiciously similar, I would argue. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, we got to get to this fucking... Just so obviously act on ending like ah, let's, let's have a sequel <laughs> first of all why who would want one like honestly no there doesn't need to be a hunger franchise like we got it this was more than enough it was a nice self-contained story with a small cast good it just undermines everything that they just did in a matter of moments thankfully everything before it is so well done but it's just wait she's still alive and now she's got like a girl with her. Like, what am I watching here? It was just yeah. it was. It's, it's it doesn't make sense if what they're trying to say is what they think they're trying to say. Do you know what I mean? Well, what, what do you feel they're trying to say then? <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure now. <laughs> but before, it would have been nice to be like, yeah, you know, like these cycles of addiction can be ended. But now I'm like, oh wait, but can they? Like, are they saying that you're just, like, cycles can never be broken? That's upsetting to me. It's really I got the idea that they're implying that she's the new Miriam sort of idea. Well, that's what I'm saying. But, right. like, if she is and that cycle continues, you know what I mean? As opposed to, like, it ending with Miriam. No, I, I agree with you. I don't think that they put that much fucking thought into it to begin Probably with. Probably not. I literally think, let's just have our lives so we can do a sequel with Susan Sarandon starring in it. That's literally it. <laughs> I mean, the one aspect of the ending I kind of do like is that uh, Miriam is stuck inside her own coffin in, like, a basement storage facility somewhere, and she's calling out. I like that aspect of it, but I do really like I don't think you even needed Sins Rain to be alive for that to happen. You could even have, like, the other ones, like, taking her into a coffin almost. Like, the other, like, somewhat living ones, like a David Bowie kind of taking her into a coffin of her own. But um, at the same time, I still I don't think it's worth having this ending, but I agree. I think having Susan Saran alive does completely break that kind of breaking the cycles and Miriam having to come home to roost with like, all the decisions she made previously. It, it makes a lot more sense without it. What else would have been dope, too? Because obviously they, you know, the body would have been discovered eventually. There's, there's no question. Dude, like, just bury her in a graveyard, knowing that she's going to live for eternity in a fucking graveyard. I mean, that's terrifying. They could have done something like that, even, and I would have preferred it. Just what we got, just like I said, it feels so just sequel baity that. Oh yeah. I just can't. I can't 
I can't get behind it, Thomas. I can't do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Paul, as the number one fan of the Hunger ending, I'm very disappointed in all of this. But but we can let bygones be bygones here because we have a whole other movie to get into in a second. So let's do our final thoughts here on The Hunger. Ali, your final thoughts on The Hunger. I fucking love this movie. I wish it would have ended differently, but it's okay. Like, we just don't have to acknowledge it. I kind of, I do the thing I do with Twin Peaks, The Return, where, like, I don't acknowledge the last episode very much, which is controversial, I know, but I digress. And I just, like, don't even finish watching this movie sometimes. But I love everything else about it. I love that it's super goth. It's very much my kind of vampire movie. I love that it is a different kind of vampire story. I love that, you know... It's one of the first times where we see the story from the vampire's point of view. And it's their story, not really, like, the human story. So I do think it does a lot for the vampire genre. And I think everyone should watch it because, if nothing else, David Bowie looks amazing. Mr. in his various outfits, including the beginning when he has the black hair. And oh, so glasses. good. <laughs> it looks like Roy Orbison so... for some reason. Yeah, at the very Oh, beginning. gosh. Wow. <laughs> that can't be unseen now. <laughs> uh, but Adam, your final thoughts on The Hunger. I think it is a perfect sort of time capsule of the movie. They, they, this movie fits perfectly in sort of the era it's in, but it does have a timeless quality to it because of maybe the source material or just because David Bowie, even though he passed, is still just so relevant and still so beloved. And Susan Sarandon is, I mean, she's just dynamite and a knockout in it. Catherine Denevue is just perfect in it. I, I think it's a perfect sort of small cast interpersonal story that just happens to involve vampirism i think it's really well done the soundtracks kick ass the goth aspect is awesome like this feels like proper goth that you know in vampire movies that i'd argue you maybe didn't get proper goth again till even as recently as only lovers left alive all the rest felt really sort of industrial manufactured but these people feel like they're goth and uh it's just it's super fun it's super good Uh, the makeup's great david bowie's so fun in it you know, the ending, it sucks, but the <laughs> journey to get to the ending is so enjoyable that it doesn't ruin the experience. It's close. It could still. I think it's definitely more deserving of uh, maybe more credit and attention than it's sort of garnered. Amen. Yes, the ending sucks. You're <laughs> First person to ever make that joke. I'm really groundbreaker. I'm really proud of it. My comedic stylings. But um, I agree, obviously, with what everyone said here. Aside from the kind of tacked on ending, I really do dig this one a lot, too. Like I said, at the time, a lot of people said it was sort of style over substance. I've heard that complaint a lot with Tony Scott in general. But I think with, along with his other movies, that at least work a lot better to me than some uh, would claim they do. I think what works is Tony Scott's one of those guys where he might do a lot of like stylistic choices, but the style oftentimes becomes the substance in a way that really works for the story that he's telling. I think that's very much the case here where like it's all steely and backlit, but in a way that works for like these characters and representing what they want and their desires and their um, addictions and all this other stuff. I think it's a, it's a very underrated one in terms of the, the vampire stuff. Aside from like a cult audience it has, I would agree it isn't like the most mainstream one that a lot of people would know. But if it, nothing else, if this gets more people to watch it, I would definitely recommend, as everyone else has, uh, to watch The Hunger, if you can. And uh, before we get into our next film, uh, here's an ad for an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. What's new on the 42 cast? Let's ask my co-hosts. We're talking about Doctor Who. Comic book shows and movies. And we're talking about all things Star Trek. <laughs> and so much more. 
Check us out on Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and iTunes. It's only on the 42Cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. So, Nathan, when are we finally talking Babylon 5? All right, now let's get into Dracula 2000. For centuries, a secret has been buried beneath the streets of London. Something beyond your deepest fears. He's Rothestal. Who? Draculia. There are worse things than death. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, Dracula 2000 came out, appropriately enough, uh, December 22nd, 2000. Um, and Adam and I were, like, talking off mic um, about this, and I think it's true that a lot of movies put the year 2000 at the end of their titles in, like, the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, but I would say that uh, this is the only one that really exemplifies everything about the year 2000, uh, mostly for worse. Because, I mean, uh, the cast year one could only happen in the year 2000. Because <laughs> you got Omar Epps, Vitamin C is in this movie. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, the, the intense soundtrack, the Virgin Records being such a key plot point and stupid misnomer. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, Danny Masterson's in here, that piece of shit. Um, but there's a lot of things that, like, very much feel like the year 2000 more than any other movie with the title 2000. I'm disappointed because as much as this movie sucks, I really do think that it had potential. And it just shat the bed so badly. Oh, I mean, I think shat might be a fucking, like, a nice word to use. It's scat. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's this movie. Fuck, man. Like, I saw this at the show. I was super pumped. Because, A, you know, Wes Craven presents it like, oh, yeah, a new Dracula. And I got to say, within the first 20 minutes, I was like, oh, no. <laughs> it's like the sleek thieves came in. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fucking nightmare fest. <laughs> and I was 100% accurate. And, and still am, I'd like to say. Uh, Scottish Dracula who's supposed to be Judas from Israel. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? <laughs> like, <laughs> hey, I think that's clever. I loved that. Just because it's like... No, no, I had no problem with that, but Gerard Butler, to me, doesn't read Judas Iscariot and or Dracula. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. And, and then, like I said, and then Thomas, you know, vitamin C. <laughs> Fucking... Yeah. Oh, God. And Johnny Lee Miller, still like hackers, Johnny Lee Miller. And like, you're better than me. Seven of Nine herself, Jerry Ryan also. It's such a like cast that would only happen in the year 2000. It's ridiculous. And the whole aesthetics, like that Gerard Butler Dracula clearly is a guy who like, oh, you watch The Matrix and only like the fashion. That's like the only oh, thing you liked about it. For sure. And he's walking around with this fucking like nicely coiffed, you know, neck length hair. And he's like, of course, Virgin Records. Uh, hey, oh, pew, pew. But he's wearing like, his awful clothes. And of course, everybody in the store is like, oh, yeah. Where in real life, people are like, look at this fucking dork. Like, you just, could not get away with wearing a trench coat like that in everyday life. Ever. But I don't no. think ever. Well, maybe in like the 1920s, if you're working on a case, see? <laughs> um, but you know i'm curious ally you kind of mentioned this earlier and there's been a bit of twitter back and forth 
um, about how you saw this movie and you were not necessarily the biggest fan because this is the first time you've seen it, right? For the auspice of our show. Aren't you so glad? Uh, I had only seen this once before and I didn't finish it and I didn't watch it in order, if that makes any sense. So, like, it was one of those movies where, like, you walk in on somebody watching it, you stay for, like, a good 15 minutes and you're like, I'm good, that's enough. And then you leave. That's what that was this for me and then i had to watch it in its entirety for this podcast and i will never recover i will never recover but now i feel like i've gained something because now i can actually join the discourse because this movie gets talked about so much on my timeline it might be because it's like a weird nostalgic thing now we're like we're starting to get into early 2000s nostalgia at this point which is kind of a bummer because it's like oh you're being nostalgic for crap like this which is so like indicative of like we, we talk about this a lot on the show whenever we talk about, like, a big studio movie that's clearly put together by guys in a boardroom who have giant cigars who are just like, this is what the kids like. This is this is what the kids like 2000. <laughs> because well, of- the kids do like this. That's the mm-hmm. thing. I would have loved this if it was more like, okay, but also Queen of the Damned is a terrible movie too, but I like it, and I thought that that's what this was going to be for me, and it just wasn't, and I can't quite put my finger on why. I don't think it's as, like, stylistically driven as Queen of the Damned is, well, and that might be where it comes short. Well, that, and at least Queen of the Damned had uh, original source material. This was clearly just sort of cobbled together from a whole bunch of ideas, and like Thomas said, it feels like studio heads who were completely detached from it, like, kids like Crystal Method, put that music in it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, what the fuck, dude? Like, Omar Epps, wasn't he a juice? Like, this is just, this is a fucking <laughs> It's so bad. You know, and then my boy, that has been mentioned on the show before, my boy Chris Plum, or C. Plummy, why is he in this? Oh, it's very much a paycheck. It's a paycheck. Completely for him. I mean, completely. Which the idea of, I don't mind the idea of Van Helsing siphoning Dracula's blood to keep himself alive just in case Dracula awakes so he can combat him again. Kind of a cool idea. It's kind of this cool eternal struggle. Sort of, they will always be at war with each other to the end of time. I do. I do fuck I'm, with that. I do fuck with that. I do have to say that's amazing. Yeah, it's a cool idea, right? Like I've never even heard of that before. But it's just so dumb in this movie. It's so <laughs> well, I feel like it's kind of like put off to the side. Like a lot of the cool ideas we're kind of talking about, like even the Judas thing, I agree is an interesting idea, or the whole siphoning off in Helsing, like with Dracula blood. It's kind of cool, but it's always, like, sort of pushed off to the side in favor of, like, what we're talking about, which is, like, the cool stuff, like the opening, which is this big, like, attempt at a Mission Impossible-style high sequence with, like, oh, here's these cool badass guys that use, like... It's so terrible. <laughs> it's so bad. Just, like, oh, here's this eyeball that has Van Helsing's exact look and this voice oh. scanner, all this other shit, and they're able to get in and all this other crap. Like, it always is pushed aside for, like, let's do something kind of cool in 2000, you guys. Yeah. Yep, we're all wearing shiny coats. While we're stealing. Like, fuck off. <laughs> they're all, they're all not suspicious at all, Adam. I don't know what you're talking about. No, not so. at all. They completely look like they belong in a museum. And then it's like, as I've, I've dogged on him before, but Thomas, this is the movie that made me hate Omar Epps. He's so bad in this fucking movie, dude. When he's, when he's fully vamped out, it's laughably bad. When he pops up behind Johnny Lee Miller, like after you think he's dead, and the face he's making, for one, is what is happening here. And then he just stands there and makes the face for like 30 seconds. And they get the drop on him and kill him. He's the worst fucking vampire in the history of vampires. <laughs> you guys see my fangs? Keep looking at him. 
That <laughs> is a really damning uh, determination there. That's crazy. You really think that? Ah, uh, well, no, maybe not. But it definitely feels like like your other pick was Bordello of Blood, and I think they both have a similar style with like the vampire acting, which is everyone's like, oh, I'll make like the Buffy face. And that'll be oh. my attempt at, like, doing a quote-unquote vampire thing. But it's all just, like, it feels almost like, oh, we're doing, like, scare actor things at, like, a Halloween Horror Nights as opposed to acting at any point. <laughs> I'd say that's accurate. I did want to ask you guys a question. Go ahead. So, you know how, like, Van Helsing kind of stays alive by basically taking Dracula's blood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then he has a child. And then that child becomes Dracula's love interest. Isn't that kind of strange? Because... It's Dracula's blood. Oh, Doesn't that very... make Dracula kind of her, like, dad? Yeah. Well, yeah, especially because, like, he has the dialogue that's about just, like, oh, her blood is in me. I must go after her. It's like, okay, we're... Oh, it's this is vaguely weird. incestuous. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's really creepy and weird. It's absolutely strange. Like, it'd be like seeing somebody who looks like you and be like, oh, yeah, we meant to be together. Like, you're like, this is fucking... <laughs> It's like the weird, like, Milhouse's parents attraction rule of, like, oh, we look like each other. <laughs> oh, no. Absolutely. It'd be like if Jack and Jill decided to get married. Uh, no, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's very creepy. But again, that's how you can tell that they made ahead good ideas, but then they just had to add filler and loosely tie it all together in some way. Well, we can't have that housing fight, Jack. We gotta have some, like, Young, hot people. Well, it'll be Van Helsing's daughter. Well, how does Van Helsing have a daughter that's that age if he's been alive since the 1600s? Dracula's blood. Okay. And what does Dracula want to do? Well, he wants to have sex with her, of course. You're like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Makes perfect sense if you ask me. Yeah, get the... Hey, the girl who sang Graduation, let's have her show her naked <laughs> chest and ruin her career. That's going to be extremely good. successful. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's get her. That song was hot. It's just... <laughs> I think the one thing, like, I don't think he's pulling a good performance, but I can at least say Gerard Butler is giving it his all, even though his all is not very good. <laughs> I feel like he's at least very earnest with trying to be like, oh, yes, I am sexy, Dracula. It's like, God bless you, Gerard. You, you feel like you're just off the boat from Scotland, and you're really trying hard to be your big Hollywood debut, but... You know what? He was really giving me, like, Brandon Lee in this. He's very much trying to be the crow. I can definitely see that's what he's aiming yes. for. <laughs> okay, yeah. good. I thought I was just, you know, being... But I think that's part of also, like, the problem where it feels like they kind of want to make Dracula both Dracula, but also, like, a weird goth superhero crusader at the same time. Because he's like, <laughs> oh, I have my Judas backstory, so I'm literally the platonic ideal of a horrible traitor in every single, like, Christian dialect. But at the same time, I'm so tortured. It's very much giving vigilante a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Thomas, like you mentioned, you know, everything in this movie does feel deeply, deeply rooted in, you know, 2000. From the actors to the costuming to the music to the direction even. But Gerard Butler and Christopher Plummer feel like they're in a different movie. Christopher Plummer, not that he's trying, but he doesn't belong in this movie. It feels like it shouldn't be him. And Gerard Butler is generally giving it a go. And he, he just, he's not, he was the wrong choice for Dracula. Absolutely, 100% the wrong choice for Dracula. Now, if they would have got somebody else's Dracula who was worse, which I know sounds bad, because, you know, but this, I think this could be a fun, bad movie. 
But ultimately, because you got Gerard Butler, who's really trying, and, you know, you got Johnny Lee Miller, who, you know, you're like, oh, it's Johnny Lee Miller. I always like him because he was a sick boy, trade spotted. He's, you know, ah, I fucking love him. Uh, it comes across more like sad and like, oh, what a failure. But if you had a, like a, a, a silly Dracula, an actor who played him, like, okay, this is kind of fun. I wish he was almost putting off the energy, and I would recommend everyone seek out Gerard Butler's audition tape that's online. Oh. And he's going mm-hmm. even more for it, but he also has like this weird scraggly hair. Like he looks like he just came out of quarantine with like and a beard. giant hair and a beard. <laughs> yes. And he's going full for it in a way that feels kind of similar to this. But I agree, it's kind of muted by like everything around him is so insincere that him being this sincere, it's like, Gerard, you you didn't need to do this. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're like you're trying way more than anyone else is. And it feels like we mentioned so studio centered. Like it feels very much like because they have West Craven presents, but it's directed actually by Patrick Lussier, who um, had edited all the Scream movies before this. It feels also different. Like we're trying to do Scream, but for vampires in a way that constantly falls flat too. Like the weird self aware jokes they do. Like I don't drink coffee. Oh. Awful. Awful. So Terrible. Awful. I cringed. <laughs> 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 you know what though uh you know since ali since you're on uh as bad as this is holy shit dude the second and third one oh god right direct to video sequels that you could do for your show at some point i'm gonna go ahead and speak on behalf of my other co-hosts and say no i'm <laughs> well, gonna say no all i know is in the second one it's supposed to be the same dracula it's a completely different actor and then the third one, it's supposed to be the same Dracula, but it's Rudger Hauer. Uh. <laughs> you're like, what the fuck? And the Jason Scott Lee from the live-action Bungle Book movie, the one from the 90s, is a priest who hunts vampires. That's I'm so the- angry. I'm so angered by this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will ask this, Ally. In your like big uh, sort of vampire viewership, especially for Dracula, would you say this is the worst Dracula movie you've seen, or are there far worse to you? Uh, no, this is probably the worst Dracula movie I've ever seen. Not the worst vampire movie. The nice. worst vampire movie I've ever seen is Kiss of the Damned. I hate that movie so much. I know a lot of people like it, but I hate it. Just terrible, awful, the worst. Maybe I need to give it a chance, though. Another chance. I would say don't watch this, but previously on the show, I think we've done a worse Dracula adaptation which was Dario Argento's Dracula 3D. Oh, no, because that is laughably bad. I mean, it's mostly boring, though. It's really fucking boring. That's true. But this is also so boring to me. This one was really boring, you guys. Maybe it's because I love Argento, so I'm, like, trying to... And he was actually more involved, I feel like, than Wes Craven was in this, obviously. Oh, I mean, yeah, because he was, like, an executive producer, just like, here, I'll let my editor for the screen movies get a chance to like make a movie oh that's gosh. all he really had the investment to do but would you say adam this is would you say this is worse than dracula 3d or not no no i don't think it's worse uh, I <laughs> wow know, i do know of a worse dracula movie uh and i challenge both of you to watch dracula 3000 oh yes that's the one in space right <laughs> that's the one in space with casper van dien as van helsing and coolio is in it as well i'm uh, gonna have to watch that Oh, I don't know that you should, but <laughs> it's, uh, I, I'd argue that's definitely worse because it, it, it came out in like 2004, uh, and it was definitely one of those where the way it was released and the way it was advertised, because it was on like the really shitty movies uh, that you would rent, they'd have the preview for it, where it was advertised as sort of a continuation of this one, or at least the sequels to these ones. So that's what everybody thought it was, and it's just the worst. 
But no, I do not think this is the worst Dracula movie, and simply because they do have sort of unique ideas to it, where Dracula 3D is just... Oh, man, what a dumpster fire. Well, I, I, I would say even with, like, the... We kind of mentioned the Judas thing, but the, the twist that he's actually uh, Judas is, I think, interesting, and I wish wasn't just sort of placed at the end as a twist. Like, they kind of allude to it throughout the movie, but I almost prefer if, like, they just went right off the bat with, like, he's Judas, and we kind of, like, explore that angle a lot more throughout the movie, as opposed to kind of, like, building up and reveal, oh, my God, look who he is, he's Judas, great. We got, like, five minutes left in the movie, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> Yeah, I agree. That, that's what, you know, that's kind of what I was getting at. They, there's so many cool ideas to this. Like, you know, we were talking about earlier with the Van Helsing thing and then with the idea of him being Judas, which I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, but I think it's original at least. And, and that, to me, like, gives it some cred. If they would have just went balls in and, and went with it, then I think you could have something fun here. But everything's just sort of like, yeah, hey, uh, yeah, Van Helsing was uh, kept alive because of leeches. Now one of them's going to eat his eye, and then, uh, yeah, it's follow his daughter for the rest of the movie. And you're like, okay, well, what the fuck is this? Like, it's, <laughs> there's so many half-cocked ideas in here, and nothing is really done in earnest or to completion, it feels like. Those sound like pretty good final thoughts, unless you have anything else to add, Adam. <laughs> uh, fuck it. No, Omar Epps is terrible, and uh, <laughs> Gerard Butler's He's trying, but Dracula would not have had that hair. Uh, I just want to say that. Uh, there's a but lot would of... You, would Judas have had that hair? No, even definitely not. I don't know, unless, like, Jesus blessed him. To, to be fair, also, he wouldn't have that Gerard Butler Scottish skin tone either, but that's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> I give uh, you a full name, my son. But no, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's you know, it's not good. It, it's really not good. And, uh, unfortunately, it carries the name Wes Craven attached to it. But a lot of shitty movies also had Wes Craven's name attached to it. And that's that what it's very true. Yes, but, uh, Ali, what about your final thoughts on Dracula 2000? <sighs> you know, I just, I just don't think you have to explain vampire lore and why they are the way that they are. So I think that this movie trying to do that in a creative way. It, it was, like, too much exposition, you know what I mean? It's like when a film is like, and this is the crypt that we stay out of because... <laughs> Do you get what I'm saying? But either way, it could have been fun. I'm upset. I'm so devastated because some people actually really like this movie. And I re I'm kind of notorious for liking really terrible movies. My best friend, Rob Dean, Neurotic Monkey on Twitter, always makes fun of me for it. So I was like, I know I'm going to love this. I can't wait to be the only one on the podcast who loves this. And I didn't. And I'm very disappointed in that because I feel like this could have been really funny. But it just wasn't. It was boring. Yeah, I think that uh, sums it up pretty well. I'll just only add, besides agreeing with both of you on everything you said, I think what really sums up the sort of half-baked attempt at putting this out is the story that apparently another awful person attached to this movie, Harvey Weinstein, one of the producers... Ugly. Yep, was um, calling uh, Scott Derrickson, who was a script doctor on this movie, and said, like, hey, I got this script called Dracula 2000. And Scott Derrickson was like, oh, is that any good? No, it's terrible. Then why'd you buy it? Because it's called Dracula 2000. That is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but totally something I see him doing. 100% feels like something that he would do, yeah. And um, from there, all sorts of people got involved, script doctoring and making into this mess that ultimately is here. And I do agree, it feels like people can be nostalgic for this movie, sure, but the only kind of 
interest you might have in it is if you want a terrible time capsule of like all the stupid things about the year 2000. That's the only sort of interest I would have anyone like potentially see this for. It's like, yep, this feels like the year 2000 for all the wrong reasons. All the stupid-ass dumb reasons. But that is the end of our discussion of our two features for the evening. Though we have some feedback to read and we're going to do our picking at the very end for next week, so stay tuned for that. First, though, uh, as I mentioned, we have some feedback, because at DEDVPod on Facebook and Twitter, we ask all of you, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite movies related to whatever topic that we're doing? And so uh, we had some people, including uh, James Rodriguez, says, favorites uh, for vampire movies, Near Dark, Leather at One In, What We Do in the Shadows, Martin, Thirst, The Transfiguration, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and The Lost Boys. Least favorites, Dracula 3D, John Carpenter's Vampires, Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. Um, Lana Hyatt, said for love, in terms of vampire movies, anything Lugosi, Vampire in Brooklyn, Cirque du Freak, The Vampire's Assistant, Queen of the Damned, Once Bitten, Dracula Untold, 30 Days of Night, Fright Night, Vampires, the John Carpenter one, Let the Right One In, Stakeland, Underworld, Interview with a Vampire, What We Do in the Shadows, and Waxworks. Met and Not So Great, Daughters of Dracula, and Ankle Biters, Worst and Awful, but So Bad It's Good Terms, Sleepwalkers, Lost Boys 2 and 3, Innocent Blood and Blood Rain. Uh, at Elwood underscore Tiberius on Twitter says, On the list of worst, I'd be remiss not to mention Blood Rain. Uh, Eric Avon says, Fave is Bill Paxton in Near Dark. The other vampires can all suck it. Uh, and then John <laughs> Riokes at JCJR Riokes uh, says, uh, Coppola's Dracula is still probably my favorite uh, for how operatically horny it all is. Uh, of course, Dracula wears his hair and uh, giant buns. Uh, drinks absinthe and fucks in disgusting pig wolf cosplay. Uh, dude's a freak. Of course, uh, staking over party or Lucy makes her barf all over you. She's a freak as well. Uh, interview gets close to the stuff too, with Brad and Tom all bony for each other. Neil Jordan's direction taps the same vein as Coppola's. Uh, vampires are a dork's fantasy of cool people. Movies that uh, that get that get it right. And I know it's the lowest of low fruits, but vampire baseball is maybe the worst thing to ever happen to vampires. And in a world where werewolf basketball is perfectly acceptable, I can only wonder if immortality just makes you more accepting of boring sports. I mean, honestly, like, I've been revisiting some of those Twilight movies with, with friends and sort of the quarantine. And I would honestly say, like, I don't think they're that terrible. And I think people gave it a bad rap quite frankly, at the time. I completely agree. I think they're, I think they're harmless, dude. They're absolutely fine. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the Twilight movies. Like, it's just another take on vampirism. There is no code book or rule book written that has to be strictly followed. It's, it's totally fine to interject new ideas into it and try out new formulas. They've done it for every other fucking monster ever. And it seems like the most, the, the one that constantly gets shit on the most if they change the rules. If it's not zombies, it's vampires. And how dare you? It's so like, ridiculous. And the only reason I think that this movie is met with so much criticism, it's because it was widely loved by women. <laughs> And young but, women at that. Especially teenage girls, yeah. That are just like, oh my god, they're getting all their icky romance in our vampires and werewolves. Like, shut up. <laughs> like, you I have mean, all your other bullshit. <laughs> Let them exactly. have this. <laughs> well, no, yeah, and here's the thing with that, too. They're getting all our icky romance and blah, blah, blah. Dracula, you fucks, was a love story. The idea behind it was Dracula lost his love. And he found this other woman that he saw her in and he wanted her. It ultimately, Dracula, while being terrifying, is still, at its core, a love story, an eternal love story. Like, who cares? Exactly, exactly. And all vampire movies are, at its core, about love and sex. So, 
Oh, and I love them. They sparkle in the sun. Yeah, in Blade, they wore sunblock. <laughs> After had a... And that worked. Go fuck yourself. Who cares? Yeah. And then, and plus, look, if nothing else, those movies gave um, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson the ability to, like, fuck off and do whatever the hell they wanted. And that's been amazing. So it's like, I'm totally fine with them having existed so we can get their weird things. I agree. And there's some really cool ideas in the Twilight universe. There is some cool... I, I love the idea of the different sects of vampires. Like, the you know, the... What are they? The... Oh, the, the Volturi. Yeah, I always said the Chitari for the vegetables. <laughs> 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 I mean, that could apply, I guess. But yeah, like the Voltori and this ancient vampire race that is in Rome. And I mean, it's it's cool. I'm into it. Fuck it. And, Who cares? and Michael Sheen is so fucking good in those movies. So gleefully over the top and awesome. Maybe I'll watch them now. Those are actually like... And there's been like a resurgence, right, lately. Is that just me on my timeline? But people are really, really like rewatching those. Yeah, I feel like it's since, like, what was it, Midnight Sun came out, right? The new... Yeah. Oh, that's like, right, came out. That's I think right. that's kind of why. But yeah. but yeah, it's like, they're fine, they're weird, they're interesting. I particularly like Eclipse, the third one, because it was David Slade who did uh, 30 Days of Night. Right. And did a lot of fun stuff in that one. Um, but what are some other ones either that were mentioned or that you think are sort of undersung, Ally, in terms of the vampire? Uh, undersung? I think all of those are very, very talked about... So I'm not sure, but I do want to particularly call out Bill Paxton in Near Dark because I always forget that movie exists. But then when I remember that it exists, I'm like, holy shit, that is like one of my favorite vampire movies. I, I've never experienced anything like it. And I wonder why it is that I have to be reminded. I think part of it is that it isn't in circulation. There's a lot of weird right stuff with it. So it's never gotten like that consistent like home video or streaming like release. That's definitely probably it. It's also very, like, the whole southern, like, hillbilly vampire thing is, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it, but I do, I just love that movie. Like, it's it's insane. So, I'm, you know, I'm going to have a vampire marathon soon, and that'll be the first one I watch, because I haven't seen it in a while, and that might be another reason that I haven't really thought about it. You know, one that was mentioned I do really want to spotlight is um, Martin, which, if you don't oh. know, is one from George A. Romero. Amazing. Um, which he did, I believe it was, like, right before Dawn of the Dead. Um, that's incredible. It's a very interesting experience now where it's about this kid who is brought over to Pennsylvania and has this weird... It might be a mental disorder more than it is actually him being a vampire, that he thinks he's a vampire. And he goes just basically searching out for blood, and it's this weird, tragic, interesting movie. Kind of vampire's kissy, right? Yes, like that less comedic, <laughs> to be oh, fair. I mean, honestly, <laughs> vampire's kiss is very dark to me. It's not funny. Like, it's scary to me. It's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. It's darkly funny, I would say. But yeah, it definitely yeah, yeah. has, like, there's a weird kind of psychosis to it that's similar to Martin. I would definitely say that one, I think also because it's so obscure, definitely deserves a lot more love. I would say, aside from Creepshow and, like, the Dawn of the Dead movies, I would say that's my favorite, like, fifth favorite or so Romero movie, one that doesn't get enough I love. Think, I think that he actually... I'm going to get crucified for this. No pun intended in terms of Dracula 2000. But I think that his best stuff is his non-zombie related things. Like, I love Season of the Witch. And I think Martin is his best movie, like, period. So, yeah, do with that information as well. I don't disagree with you. Uh, I mean, Day of the Dead's my favorite Romero movie because I just love how fucking nutty it is. But, yeah, I think Martin's probably his best work. I really do think so. 
I, I have a bunch of vampire movies that I wrote down. I'm going to rattle off because they weren't in our feedback that I think are sort of not talked about or underappreciated. And we don't really have to get into them, but I, I just want to make sure I list them. Um, Shadow of the Vampire with Malkovich and Willem Dafoe. Mm-hmm. I think absolutely just blast of a movie. Um, Night Flyer, the Stephen King uh, movie that came out with um, Miguel Ferrer. Really fun. I did mention the Nosferatu remake from Werner Herzog, but I still think that's a really fun one. Stakeland from 2011 is a really fun one with Daniel Harris. It's like post-apocalyptic, but they're like zombie vampires. It's really bizarre, but it, it's really good. Um, then there's a uh, Vampiros Lesbos, or like I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's fucking such a good, good movie. And I think when it came, when they released it, it was the lesbian vampires, like in English. But uh, that's a great. I mean, that's what it translates to, I think. Yeah, I think so. And then there's uh, Thirst by Park Jan Wook. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a great, great one too. It's weird though, man, and kind of gross, just in a lot of the noises that are made and stuff like that. And then uh, <laughs> the last one I want to talk about, we actually talked about on the show in our uh, Guillermo del Toro episode, is Kronos. Kronos. Yes. I think that's a very, very, just as we already said, an excellent sort of exercise in the deconstruction of the vampire genre and just a totally different way to take it. And surprisingly, as big as Del Toro got, as big as the vampire films are as a subgenre, that's one that's not really known still. I would say another one in sort of a similar vein of like being experimental and a bit more weird with it is um, I just recently saw it because it's on um, Shudder in the Criterion channel is uh, Ganjin Hess. Yeah, which, how is that? I really want to. Yeah. It's it's very experimental and interesting because it's more from like the perspective of, like there the vampirism is much more treated as like an addiction thing like we kind of talked about with the hunger. There's a lot more like weird flashing like imagery and stuff like that. But I think it's incredibly interesting. It's one of the few other movies that Dwayne Jones of uh, Night of the Living Dead did after um, he was in that movie. It's a weird experiment, especially for like the black exploitation era. It doesn't feel like oh it's just Blackula. It's like no, this is the weirder, way outsider version of Blackula. You know what to but to but to comment on that. You know Blackula, the name alone garners it some chuckles and it sort of gives it a stigma from being in the black exploitation genre, but I, I'd still think Blackula is a very competent film, and I still think it's it's really well done. William Marshall alone is incredible oh, God. in that movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it suffers from like the Twilight thing where people just discredit it because it's black exploitation or whatever, but it is really, really good. Um, well, thank you for all that feedback, and we also want to thank a few other people, uh, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks Stanley Scarter for the art for our show. Thank you to our loyal Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where you all get to pick certain things, like uh, we put out polls for, say, a, a movie that we get to cover for an episode, like The Hunger that you all picked. And we get to do that again, because uh, this week we have a new poll, this time for bad picks from Adam's Choices for our upcoming in November Criterion episode. Um, and what are the two choices they have to pick between Adam? Uh, they have Shampoo, which I am just not a fucking fan of at all. <laughs> and where. The Blob 2, or The Blob Returns, or The Blob Strikes Back, or The Blob. It had, like, fucking 900 different titles. But the sequel to The Blob, which is also not very good. Which are both streaming for some reason on the Criterion, especially Beware the Blob's a weird choice. I think it's only because they also have the original Blob as well. 
so it's maybe a package deal. I don't know. Um, but you'll get to pick between those two, and like we mentioned, whatever one gets chosen there is the one that we'll cover on that particular episode. But, of course, we also want to thank the lovely Alejandra Gonzalez for coming on. <laughs> thank you so much, Alejandra. Thank you. Go ahead and plug yourself. Where can people find you around on the interwebs? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at sick underscore underscore six six. I also have like an alt account if you're interested um, where I get to get, you know, creative and really expressive. So you can follow that at the Blair bitch underscore underscore, but it is not safe for work. So keep that in mind. And then um, I am writing again for Talk Film Society. It's been a long time since I've written anything because, you know, 2020 has kind of defeated me, but I'm excited. They're having um, a bit of a like virtual film festival, and I'm writing about Batman Returns, which I'm really excited about. So definitely stay tuned for that. And actually, I forgot the most important thing. You can also listen to my podcast. Uh, it's Sequels, S-E-E-Q-U-E-L-S. We cover direct-to-video sequels, and every episode spoiler alert, is about a bad movie. Right, and of course, uh, we've had uh, Shaquille and Sarah on the show previously, and would love to have them back on, just like we've had you back on here. Um, it's a fun show, <laughs> I love listening to it. Oh, thank you. But you can find us doing our rinky-dink operation over here at Pod, as I mentioned, on Twitter and Facebook, and uh, you can submit feedback or follow us over there for stuff. We can also submit feedback over at uh, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. You can also find me on my individual account at NotTheWho'sTommy, on Twitter and Instagram for stuff, and I uh, also do some writing at my blog, marianithomas.wordpress.com. And uh, Adam, you actually have something uh, to promote as of right now, because uh, you were a guest on another podcast, correct? I was on a past guest, Emily Slade's uh, Why This Film podcast, where we we discussed The Last Starfighter. Yes, which I actually I watched the movie for the first time for the auspice of listening to that show. It was a great episode, and I quite enjoyed Last Starfighter. It's a fun little uh, time capsule of a movie. Yeah, man, I can't hate on Last Starfighter at all. Yeah, I think it's a perfectly uh, just enjoyable romp of a film. Yeah, and shout out to having the special effects budget of Reboot ten years before Reboot happens. <laughs> <laughs> Groundbreaking CG, but it also looks a lot like Reboot for TV. <laughs> But if you want more of our antics, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. We're on the ESO Network as well, where you can listen to all sorts of great other podcasts. But why not dig into the archives of, on our Podbean channel for all sorts of uh, earlier episodes we did before we joined the network. And nothing else we would recommend, if you can't, maybe support us on Patreon for just a dollar. If you at least rate, review, or share the show around on these various platforms, it helps us get more visibility. We would appreciate it. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> Definitely do it. <laughs> yes, do it. But um, now it's time before we leave to do our picking for next week, which we're keeping the spooky horror themes going. And next week we're doing an episode about the late but always great horror icon, Vincent Price, which is an interesting topic. I'm glad we're doing It's uh, He's a fun, obviously, uh, person to build a show around who's done plenty of good and bad movies. Uh, yeah, dude. I mean, he's Vincent fucking Price. He'd be on, you know... The Mount Rushmore of horror actors, I honestly believe. I mean, he's he's an icon for several, several reasons and will always be talked about because there's cons he's one of those where every new generation sees something Vincent Price is a part of or referenced in and ever and will go back and find uh sort of the Vincent Price films and things like that and celebrate his career. That's why he's lasted as long as he has. I'm sure we'll talk about all of that next week, but 
first we've got to do our picking, because Adam, you have the two good choices this time for films starring Vincent Price. I have the two bad ones for films starring Vincent Price. And uh, usually we pick a number between 1 and 10 to get the randomly selected good and then bad feature, but we have a guest like Ale. They go ahead and pick for us. So first, Adam's two good choices, Ale. Number between 1 and 10. Ooh. Uh, six. Alrighty. At number seven, I have uh, one that I really, really grew to love and has become one of my favorite films uh, by Vincent Price, for sure. And that is Witchfinder General. Oh. Okay, one I have not seen. Very curious to see. What was your other choice? Uh, Number one, I had, which I would say is probably the best of the Vincent Price Poe movies, and that would be uh, Mask of Red Death. Also, when I have not seen, we'll probably catch up on that before we record the episode. But, well, very right. fucker. There you got some home. <laughs> you fucking oh. piece of shit. Enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll enjoy watching these Vincent Price movies. Thank you very much. But now for my two bad choices, Ali. Number between one and ten. Mm, I'm going to go with four. All right. At number three, I had one that was one of many sort of bad anthology movies he did near the end of his career. I have From a Whisper to a Scream. Uh-oh. Big fan. <laughs> Big fan. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, no. All right. All right. But on the opposite side, I had at number nine, Cry of the Banshee. Oh, good God. Thomas, what the fuck shit? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell. All right. Well. <laughs> all right. I so we'll get... I, you know what, dude? I quit. I'm sorry. Oh, well. <laughs> I guess that's the end of the show now. But... At least we had a great time talking about Dracula 2000 here. So on that note, everybody, good night, 2000. (laughs) Good night, (laughs) UK. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.